honest question. What is with the disposable nature of plays in the Canadian theatre world? You know, I can only think of a couple of plays, one in recent memory, that have had a life outside of their initial performance. On average, we produce a play once on one of our major stages, say, for example, in Toronto, Theatre Pass Mariah, Tarragon, or Factory, and then for the most part, that play is then disposed of and forgotten and never really heard from again. And we've been doing that pretty much since the 1960s when the Canadian theatre scene really began in earnest. Every so often a play like Kim's Convenience comes along that is so undeniably good that it gets a life after its production. But for the most part, it seems that in Canada, we produce a play, it runs for a few weeks, and then when it's over, it's gone and we never hear from it again. But for American and British plays, those will often tour or get a Canadian production or be performed by community theatre groups. But aside from Kim's or The Drowsy Chaperone or Come From Away, when was the last time a Canadian play has gotten a production outside of Canada? Now, I remember a number of years ago, Howard Sherman, who was then the head of the American Theatre Wing, posted that he found it curious that he knew plays from Britain and, of course, plays from America, but he could not name any shows from Canada. Of course, a lot of Canadians helped out and named their favorites, but at the time, even he found it odd that he couldn't name a single Canadian play. Why do you think this is? What is it that prevents the plays that we create here from going on to be performed in the U.S. or Britain or elsewhere? But what's even more concerning to me is the fact that we rarely see them produced at home. So often a play is produced and like I said it runs a few weeks and it closes and it doesn't get to breathe, to grow. And it certainly doesn't get to become a hit the way shows from elsewhere get to. And I do understand that part of that is logistics. In Toronto, we have only so many theatres dedicated to producing new work, and there's only so much time that could be dedicated to a given play in each season. And because of that, a production can only run a few weeks. But that keeps us from having a show that gets to be a big hit. Because if a show does well, there's really no mechanism in place that lets a show go on to another life. Nothing that lets a show get picked up to continue on under another theater's umbrella and run for longer or anything like that. I guess, for me, the sad thing is that Canadian theater will never be able to get worldwide acclaim or even respect unless we find a way to give a play life after its first production. Not that a play has to travel to Britain or the U.S. to be successful, but at the very least, should we not have some path to further productions in Canada to give our shows the same shot at being remembered that shows in Britain and the U.S. seem to? Why don't we value the theatre we make here enough to give more of our plays a future? Don't our homegrown playwrights and actors and directors deserve that? Don't they deserve better than just being disposable? Agree or disagree? I would love to hear your opinion. Let's get to the episode. But first, I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Just a reminder that Stageworthy is a one-person operation. 
I book the guests, conduct the interviews, produce the episodes, create the artwork, and promote the show, as well as pay all the costs associated with doing all of that. So if you enjoy this show, I would love it if you can help out. One really easy way for you to help is to rate the show, which you can do on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Your ratings and reviews really do help new people find this show. And if you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. You can also support Stageworthy by dropping some change in the virtual tip jar. There will be a link to that in the show notes. Or you can subscribe to the Patreon at patreon.com slash stageworthypod. For a monthly subscription of just $5, I will take you behind the scenes on the podcast, do regular Q&A sessions, and even present regular, exclusive, interactive conversations just for subscribers. Remember, you can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all the episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. My guest this week is Saskatoon-based dancer and choreographer, Jackie Latondres. She is the founder of Free Flow Dance Theater, which has been producing work since 1993. She is a longtime Burning Man attendee and is the regional contact for Saskatchewan. She's received numerous awards for her work in dance and most recently received the 2021 Saskatoon YWCA Woman of Distinction Award for Arts and Culture. She also happens to be one of my oldest friends. It doesn't take long after meeting Jackie to realize that she is someone who just gets stuff done. When she sees a need, she steps up and makes it happen. Recently, she saw a need and developed a -a one-of-a-kind bodyworker program to lengthen and strengthen the careers of dancers. Here's our conversation. So, uh, I was thinking today that uh, we met a very long time ago. I was 16, which is a very long time ago. Um, (laughs) And... uh, uh, I mean, we met at the the Young People's Theater uh, uh, Summer Drama Day Camp, and you as a dancer, what, I mean, were, were, you knew then that you were primarily going to be a dancer, correct? Yes, I did. It was an interesting time when you're a teenager, and uh, I was <laughs> growing up in a small town, so I got a chance to go to the big city and, and uh, be there during the mm. summer for that program. It was a... Uh, Definitely a lot of fun. I remember dyeing my hair pink and my parents were completely shocked when they came to pick me up in Toronto. Um, yeah, but I always knew I wanted to be a dancer. I don't know if you remember that. My, they, yeah, bright strawberry shortcake pink. It was a lot of fun. Oh, I remember that. Absolutely, I do. <laughs> but as somebody who was primarily wanting to be a dancer, do you recall when dance first became a thing for you? Well, I took lessons from a young age. Of course, that's usually the way that most people get introduced. But I started taking it seriously as a teenager. Um, my my teacher was, she was very supportive 
and brought me to a lot of different types of uh, camps. Uh, we went to Chicago one summer to study at Gus Giordano School of Dance, and I was introduced to contemporary dance there for the very first time. I took my very first Graham class and my very first Limon class there and fell in love with it. And I mean, you, you went to, you studied dance at the University of Waterloo. And I remember, I remember visiting you there and I remember uh, you founded a free flow dance theater there, uh, or at least just after you graduated and you did a bunch of shows there uh, yes, before yes. you moved the company to Toronto and then eventually to Saskatoon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. So I got my start at the University of Waterloo dance department, which is no longer, uh, unfortunately, it has since been disbanded. Mm. But it was a fantastic program. It was highly academic, as well as a lot of fabulous dance training opportunities. I specialized and focused in contemporary dance with a focus on choreography, and was one of the first students in the dance program there to create a choreography-focused stream of study. A little bit, hmm. little bit of uniqueness there. Uh, I've never been afraid yeah. to yeah. Tr- try to find my own pathway. And uh, yes, I formed Free Flow Dance Theater in 1995. I had dabbled in choreography prior to my graduation and had a somewhat informal group of dancers working with me and founded a small uh, collective called the Choreographers Collective in Kitchener-Waterloo. We were producing a lot of really edgy independent shows, trying to find our feet as artists and trying to develop our own personal styles. Uh, it was a it was a really fun uh, time where we produced shows at nightclubs. We did underground theater, and we were not afraid to step in and create contemporary dance pieces for fashion shows and all kinds of interesting uh, ways to get started within the field. Eventually, I moved mm-hmm. from Kitchener Waterloo to Toronto bringing most of the company members with me and, of course, adding new dancers as we uh, met them in Toronto. Yeah, you had a great little, a great space there with like a, a full studio and and like lots of space and uh, you ran classes out of that great space and all of that sort of stuff. We did. I it also was... remember that you, I also remember that you had this gift for finding people who would not have described themselves as dancers, convincing them that they could be a dancer and putting them in shows. Yes, definitely. (laughs) That was the time of the warehouse. And in Toronto, in the, in the mid to late nineties, it really was warehouse culture. A lot of dancers and artists uh, were living and working in uh, warehouse spaces, including myself, I remember running into you in the bank machine uh, on Queen Street, and that's how we reconnected. Oh after shit! So yes, many years. Uh, <laughs> you turned around, and I started screaming and jumped on you. I think <laughs> uh, it was quite. Funny. I think that's exactly how it happened. <laughs> and that was uh, the neighborhood that I was living in, and you were actually just a few blocks from me. So 
Um, a lot of artists, mm -hmm. obviously, were living in that neighborhood uh, during that time period. I was working with actors, dancers, musicians, poets, all kinds of people who just were interested in moving, who had the desire to move, but perhaps hadn't had a lot of training. They were welcome as well. And we combined all of these different types of people into really interesting, innovative shows. I found it fun to find raw talent uh, out at a nightclub or a dance party and, and, and convince the people that they should, you know, give the stage a try. A lot of those folks did end up becoming, you know, very active either in the dance or, or theater or perform performance art fields. Yeah. Now, what eventually, I mean, you've been in, 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 in Saskatoon for quite some time. So what took you from Toronto to Saskatoon? I had been doing the Cross Canada Fringe Festival for a number of years with the dance company and had made a lot of different friends within the theater community. And I moved to England for a short period of time where I was living and working. And when I returned, I was floating around in Toronto trying to figure out where I want to live, what I wanted to do, um, staying at various warehouse spaces and producing little small theatrical events. When I was offered um, some space to create the Works in Progress dance series in Saskatoon, and I had previously been there on the Fringe Festival and had taught some workshops for some of their community programming there. So I was thrilled when they suggested that I start this Works in Progress series featuring uh, new contemporary work by independent artists there and decided to take the chance, take a leap of faith and just move to Saskatoon. And I have not regretted the decision. Hmm. What is it about Saskatoon that has that has really sort of sort of fed you and fed your work? Yeah, well, I had a lot of support when I first arrived. People were helping me find interesting jobs and making connections with different artists. Um, I landed a teaching job at the University of Saskatchewan for quite some time until the program was cut, unfortunately. <laughs> it was a great program, actually, but it's no longer in existence. And uh, while I was there, I started establishing myself as an artist recognized uh, by Saskatchewan Arts Board funding. And really just, I felt very grassroots when I was there, uh, when I first landed. Uh, people extended hands and, and, and the use of their spaces for me to experiment in and work on new uh pieces of choreography. And the scene was very small. So it was really like invent reinventing um, the dance company when, when I first started there. Years later, I considered leaving the province because it is a small dance community there. 
And I was finding myself frustrated with the lack of opportunities for dance and the difficulty to secure funding. But luckily, I was approached by the Saskatchewan Arts Board and they talked to me and gave me a whole bunch of um, options and opportunities and things and ideas that I could potentially utilize for funding in the future. And that was very convincing. And I decided to stay. Since then, I have purchased an old church and I have converted it into a dance space for adults. And our free flow company is based out of that space, along with all kinds of other fun adult movement-based classes, ranging from everything from clown to mime to ballet to burlesque to belly dance to ballroom and beyond. So I've really enjoyed making my mark there and, and getting my toe in the door and growing, helping be part of the growing scene in dance and performing arts in Saskatoon. Do you feel like uh, when you uh, took over that church and started building that space and, and, and made it into, into what it is now, that that was sort of when your, your roots for in Saskatchewan really sort of like sunk in? Definitely, definitely. It's very expensive to, to purchase and run a large building in most places in Canada. So fortunately, I was able to afford to do that in Saskatoon and to really feel like I had a home, a home base for myself as an independent artist, but also for my company and my company dancers. And since then, the company has grown exponentially and we have dancers coming from across Canada to uh, perform with us and to join the company. And uh, people are very excited about the work that we're doing in the Prairie Provinces. Um, I've, mm -hmm. I've just had an unlimited success so far, uh, despite the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, we were supposed to celebrate our 25th <laughs> anniversary on, in 2020. So the majority of that got canceled. Oh. But we feel like this year things are actually going to start happening again. Fortunately for us, we're very flexible and small company, and I, I love performance art and, and the theatrical end of dance. So we moved outside and we created a lot of uh, participatory and immersive experiences for people that were unusual. And I would say my my background as a Burning Man regional contact probably helped a little bit where we're just used to working with what you have and making your own fun and coming up with creative problem solving. We were able to come up with some really fun activities during the pandemic so far. Yeah, I was definitely going to ask about how about the, the Burning Man connection and how it affected because the things that you were just sort of lightly describing there, I was like, well, that definitely sounds like a like like Burning Man influence there. Um with Burning Man, as somebody who's you've been going to Burning Man for a long time, um, what was your first what first drew you to Burning Man and what's kept you going back? Well, it took me a number of years to actually get there. I had wanted to go for 
a while. And a friend of mine kept poking me and saying, hey, you really need to do this. So I would look it up and research it and think, yes, that's exactly where I need to be. And then I would be busy doing the Fringe Festival circuit during the summer and unavailable. One year I decided I was not going to do the Fringe Festival circuit and I called my friend. I said, yep, I'm going to come to Burning Man this year. This is great. But then they cut the program that I was teaching at the University of Saskatchewan. So I thought, well, maybe I, maybe I can't afford to do this this year. Perhaps I should go another year. And I sent, sent my regrets. So I don't think I can make it. Here's what happened. And then my birthday arrived and a card came in the mail. It said, happy birthday. See you there. And inside the card, there was a ticket to Burning Man. So I thought, I guess I'm going to Burning Man this year. Mm. And that was how I got there the first year. <laughs> it was a transformative experience as it is for many people. I felt like I'd finally found the place where I fit in and found my family outside of my family. And it was artistically renewing. And I feel like every single time that I have gone, I come back with my artistic and creative batteries fully charged, ready to go for another year. Mm. There are so many talented and inspiring human beings that seem to find their way to that wonderful thing in the desert. And every time I come home feeling invigorated and refreshed and exhausted, but also refreshed. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it, it's definitely a creative haven for me. It's a safe space for me to experiment my style. I've done several performances there and created personas and characters that I've, I've brought back. I've test run a few technological elements, glow in the dark things, etc. And it's been a ton of fun. And that's really what we need as artists is to be able to have some fun with our peers and come away from those experiences, just wanting to do more and to do it better. I also love the participatory. One of the things that I think we sometimes. Yeah. You know, I was thinking one of the things that often uh, I think we as artists forget when we're caught up in doing our work is that we can do a work and play. You know, if you go to something like Burning Man, you can, it sounds like you're playing a lot more and experimenting without the weight of having to produce and having to um, have it be something. You can take a few more risks because you're just playing. And then you can take that, that sense of play and come home and do something kind of exciting with it. That's very true. It's such a playground. It's an adult playground. It is really a place for uh, freedom and experimentation in terms of creativity and out-of-the-box out thinking. There's not a lot of rules. And people uh, are living in that sort of immediate now. So there's no expectations. I love the participatory nature of Burning Man and the people who attend. People are willing to get up there and improvise with you, uh, take a workshop in something they've never tried before. And generally just uh, that sense of camaraderie that you have when you camp with 
people under trying circumstances. Sometimes it's really hot or dusty. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you've stayed up way too late. And and it's just a, it's an extreme experience. It's not for everybody. And it's definitely not for the faint of heart. But I do think it's for creative souls. Um. Now you 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 mentioned the 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 church that you sort of you took over and turned into the home base for for uh for for a free flow dance and for all of your work. Um, that's when you got it. It was a church. It wasn't a theater. You had to renovate that, right? Correct. It was a functioning church when I went to see it. When I purchased it, it came with all of the pews and an altar. And we definitely had to do a lot of renovations within that building. And we're still working on it. It's a, it's a work in progress. Uh, every year it gets better. Uh, just before the pandemic, we put on new windows and siding and a brand new roof, beautiful red metal roof. So we are easy to spot everywhere from everywhere in the neighborhood with our beautiful roof and our matching red door. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's been a joy. Also, I've learned how to do things like plumbing and drywalling and various other things around the house, uh, that I never imagined I would be doing. But your that, that work is, I mean, obviously like, you know, you, you take it, were you, how, how, how soon after you purchased it, were you, was free flow uh, performing in it? Oh, yes. We turned it over quite quickly. We had a number of people help from the community. Lots of friends and and neighbors came over to lend a hand. We had to um, remove a lot of old flooring to reveal all of the original hardwood, which was underneath. And so I would say probably within two months of the purchase, we had well, a soft opening and we per- free flow performed at it along with some of our uh, friends, singers and dancers. We had a, an amazing um, guerrilla arts performance by a, uh, a group that was, um, they were from South America and they were visiting Saskatoon and we had met them down at the farmer's market and invited them to our, to our opening and they all showed up in costume and did a, like just came in the door playing instruments and did a whole performance. It was an amazing uh, way to celebrate this new dance space and inject energy into the space that was so positive right from day one. I've, I've, it's been a joy mm. working in that building. Mm. I mean, it's great for an artist to have a home base, right? It's great for an artist to have a place that's theirs. It's such a rarity for somebody to be able to have that space that's theirs to work in. Um, in in a lot of ways, that's got to be really artistically flur- uh, uh, freeing because you don't have to worry about renting a space or where am I going to perform? That's a question that doesn't necessarily isn't something that you have to consider. So now you can just concentrate on the creation rather than just the the where and, and the how, right? Yes, yes, for sure. And I've built a suite in the basement so I can wake up at three in the morning inspired and get out of bed and go into the studio and work if I desire, which is kind of awesome. And I feel like the security of uh, having owning real estate, especially during the pandemic, uh, but the security of owning real estate uh, as an artist really gives me 
uh, a bit of future uh, security for myself, a bit of a retirement plan. When I am ready to retire as mm. an artist, I have this beautiful space that um, I can use as as a foundation for my retirement. So because as self-employed people, we often mm -hmm. don't have a lot of things planned for our futures. Um, this is me sort of putting that out there for the young aspiring people start your TFSA now and <laughs> but it, as independently uh, independent people we need to think about our futures and we need to be planning something for ourselves when we retire speaking of 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 planning for for retirement and 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 getting older um, I want to know more I want to know something about the 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 body worker program that you've developed um, that's to lengthen the careers of dancers. So obviously I think, I think everybody understands that, that traditionally a dancer's, uh, dance life is relatively slow, uh, short. Um, but you, you've developed this, this program, uh, uh tell me about, about the creation of that and, 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 and more. Yes. The body worker program is a very unique program. We're one of the few uh, places in Canada that offer it to our contracted artists. It is designed to prolong the dancers' careers and to mitigate uh, injuries, risk of injuries, and to keep the dancers' bodies healthy and in shape. So we have uh, several different types of body worker therapists that work with our company and provide services uh, free of charge on a monthly basis to our artists, including things like physiotherapy, massage therapy, um, fascial work, and more. And we uh, have found that by being able to provide monthly preventative and maintenance services like this to our dancers that we have almost complete. I don't think we've had one major new injury since we started the program and we have not had to cancel or um, cancel performances or hire understudies due to injuries since we began the program. So it really works. And our dancers, I wish I had this when I was younger, our dancers are so appreciative of these mm. services um, I mean, obviously, uh, the desire of any artist is to keep per being able to perform. Um, what was the process of coming up with this program and, and developing it? Did you, did you consult with people? Like, what, how, how did you develop the program? I was attending the Healthy Dancer Canada conference when they, when it took place in Saskatoon, listening to all these fantastic discussions on dancers and healthcare and as I sat in the audience, I began formulating this program, thinking, why doesn't anyone do this? This is a, this would be a great thing. Everyone should do, do the, offer this type of thing. And then by the end of the conference weekend, I thought, why don't I do this? And so instead of asking why someone else doesn't do it, and I've always been a bit of a self-starter in terms of programming. So I thought, huh, I'll maybe just talk to some of my current dancers and find out if they'd 
would like this type of thing to be offered. And consulting with our dancers, they jumped on board. They were immediately on board with this and they helped uh, get the program started, including including, um, suggestions from the dancers and the board members. We were able to uh, form the outline of what the services would be. And we were able to find therapists from a variety of different backgrounds to participate in the pilot project the first year, which was highly successful. And it's kind of just grown from there. That's, that's incredible. You know, one of the things that I think uh, I I've always, I've always thought is, is amazing about you as a, as a, as a creator is you're a doer. And so you, whenever you see something, uh, that needs to be done. I think you're more, more often than not likely to think, Oh, well, why don't I just do that? I mean, you created your own dance company and you then, you know, you, 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 you've done what you need to do to, to keep the company going and all of that sort of stuff. So I think, uh, the, a lot of times I, sometimes artists will wait for the gatekeeper to hand the thing over, but sometimes it's, it's really helpful and important to say, why don't I just do this, right? You can figure it out. You start, you figure out uh, what the next steps are. You ask around and, and that's, that's just, uh, uh, you know, why wait for somebody else to do it if, if you might be able to figure it out on your own. Agreed. And I feel like that is the start of all great collaborations. Someone needs to get it started and someone needs to inspire others to get on board and someone needs to bring in the skill sets that are needed in order for it to succeed. That way, everyone who's a participant feels invested in the programming. They feel that they are part of the development, part of it, and it's meaningful to them. If we are handed things, it often doesn't seem quite as meaningful. I think there's a sense of pride that people feel to be involved in a project and a program and helping that develop. And it, in turn, it brings a sense of loyalty to the programs and also it enhances people's willingness to work hard because they feel like they have contributed directly to the success. I, I used mm-hmm. to, as a younger artist, think that um, I used to get a little angry about uh, how I, I was like, oh, I'm always a catalyst. I'm never a star. But then, you know, as an older artist now, uh, I, I actually love to be a catalyst. I think it's partly my job here on this planet is to be a catalyst and to be able to start things and enable people to get involved in them and continue them and grow them and to grow themselves as artists. And I celebrate that now as a, as a special skill that I feel fortunate to have. We certainly need our catalysts in the performing arts and the arts in general. Like nothing would happen without the catalysts. So um, that's that's really important. And, you know, I've found as far as like the difference between, 
you know, it's great when somebody wants you to do their work. It's great when somebody says, we have this part for you. We'd like you to do it or this role for you. We'd like you to do it. And uh, that's great. And who doesn't want that? But there's something about that thing that you've had a hand in creating. It means more to you when you've done that. Yes. Um, is that part of your choreo choreographic uh, way of working? Do you do you work with the dancers? Do they input? Like, how does that? How does choreography work when uh, Jackie Latandres is is choreogra choreographing? Yeah, I am a very interactive choreographer. I like to ask for my dancers' feedback. I like to develop the movement vocabulary in collaboration with the dancers, depending upon which type of piece I'm working on. When I'm doing site-specific work, it's always a collaborative effort because I think it's very important for the artist to feel comfortable in the environment that they're in. And it's very different working in a back alley than it is working on a very perfect, immaculate stage. So I always work with the artists and ask for their input and, and their help with the development of the work. Oftentimes, I'm a concept generator, and I like to have a whole bunch of different folks brainstorming alongside of me to see you know, how can we get at the good stuff? And again, it's a little bit of a sense of play because you do have to kind of go through a lot of this generating of whatever stuff, some, the good, the bad, and the ugly to get at the good stuff. And uh, that goes for theater, that goes for dance, that goes for most uh, performance, performing arts. Um, and it's the fun part. It's the part where you get to feel like uh, like a kid again. You get to feel excited as, as the ideas come in. You get to work with other people and their ideas as well as your own. So I always feel like I'm always learning. I'm always learning something from these newer, younger dancers that are coming into the company. They bring a completely different sensibility with them than I had when I was training at university and it's refreshing and it's interesting and it's always motivating. So I, I like to keep that open. We, we do the back alley project, which is always collaborative. Um, we do, uh, we offer mentor mentoring to all of our younger emerging performers as well throughout the year, which is inspiring to me as an artist and helps with my continued development as an artist. And, we have been working outside so much during the pandemic that it it's become just part of the process to be in a constant state of listening to each other and asking each other and discussing with each other in order to get to a spot where the work is going to be at its best. And then you throw in things like snow and wind and rain, and it gets interesting. <laughs> yeah, the that sense of play that you describe is is like I think like I was saying earlier is is sometimes we can get so caught up in the idea of of the importance of what we're doing, uh, or you know who's watching and that sort of thing that we forget to play, and uh, uh, to be able to to play with other people. I mean, why 
why else do we do this if not for the 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 playing with other people mm-hmm. it's definitely joyful and we need to find moments of joy for ourselves as artists and also be able to bring that energy to our uh, audience and our participants because we we've had a a couple of really rough years and people really need art mm-hmm. now more than ever. And they need the magic and the joy that we can bring as artists who are enamored with our craft and who are, uh, you know, willing to dive in and, and fully offer authentic experiences to people. Yeah. I think there's 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 a little bit of a I know that what I'm sort of sensing around in in the world that that I'm in is a lot of that uncertainty that leads to fear. Um, you know, there've been so many times when artists have been about to present a a production or about to 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 do a show and then they have to cancel it. Um or they have to postpone it and then do we have to cancel it? Will we ever get to do this again? Um and it's very stressful and it's very difficult. It sounds like you found a great way to keep things going and still have your audience there instead of just relying on the digital production. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it just a no-brainer for you to just go outside and dance outside? Was that just naturally there was no thought you didn't, you didn't consider anything else. He just immediately thought we can do this outside. Pretty much because we had been doing our back alley antics program for, you know, 15 years already, which is outside. It's one of our most successful programs. We've done a few different versions of it. We've worked in sculpture gardens and that was the first instinct that we had. We also didn't have a lot of the technical equipment needed to do online services uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic. So fortunately, we were able to secure some funding and, and special special grants to, to invest in some of those items now. So we are much more technically savvy than we were. But really, we worked with people. We worked with, with you know, real live humans. And we wanted to see how we could continue to do that in a safe way that was still artistically viable and uh, relevant to what was happening with the, with ourselves and and, our, and also um, of course you know following the guidelines for health and safety with the pandemic so it provided a, it provided a lot of challenges and I, I love stepping up to a challenge. I, I found it um, interesting mm-hmm. to see how many new tricks I could learn <laughs> in, you know, two years. And, and <laughs> it's a challenge. If we ever stop caring about those things and learning about how to become new versions of ourselves as artists, then we're, we're losing something really important. So, yeah, I mean, we had, we've had so much fun. We, we've created all kinds of crazy events, including lots of outdoor winter things in Saskatchewan, dealing with snow and everybody's wearing snow boots and snow suits. And, you know, we've done glow in the dark stuff out in the forest. And we've done, we did a, a program called the Explorer, which was part photo safari, part walking tour and part traveling dance show, uh, where the audience was invited to try to bring their cameras and try to get a picture of this elusive, mysterious creature in the bush. And they come across various people along the way. 
uh, and various dance uh, scenarios. And, you know, we just, we, we have to keep working in a way that, that makes our lives feel fulfilled in order to be able to bring fulfilling work mm. to the viewers. And I often use the word participant rather than, than viewer, mm. because we really think of a lot of our, our audiences as people who are part of the show, especially the outdoor shows. They're walking with us, they're talking, they're bringing their cameras, they're deciding where to stand and sit. Uh, they're, you know, um, we did in our glow in the dark show, some people, you know, wore their uh, headlamps and their glow sticks and it was great fun. And people really felt like they were part of a event and we're still provided with like a really fantastic artistic and creative performance. As far as, you know, you mentioned that it took you a little while to start doing stuff online and digital stuff. Um, what was that? Cause you, know, one of the things that, you know, everybody, a lot of people that I've spoken to, um, they've had to learn a lot in the last years if they're going to do things online. Um, as far as, uh, uh, the learning curve for you? What, what kind of stuff did you pick up that you, that you never thought you would have to touch before? Oh my, the learning curve was quite steep. I was not very technically able prior to the pandemic. I would say I'm, I'm a lot better now than I was, but that, you know, it was necessary to learn the skills. Uh, I, I was familiar with Zoom because I, we actually did use Zoom um, for our um, monthly meetings and, and whatnot for Burning Man. So I, I was already kind of familiar with that platform. I had never run it before. Um, but I, you know, I actually, the, the Saskatoon Library were doing a COVID-19 archive and I thought it would be really interesting for them uh, to to just see what um, the stage management notes would be to run a Zoom performance. So I decided I was going to document one of our performances and wrote down all of the technical th notes and how basically the tech sheets on how to run a Zoom dance show and uh, submitted it to them for their archive. I think there's just even the behind the scenes in stuff is really cool and really interesting. And I had no idea uh, how many people wanted to see what we were doing until we brought our work online. We had our audience expanded exponentially and we hmm. had people tuning in from, you know, all around, all across Canada and around the world for our international dance week online program. Uh, you know, people from Spain and, and Africa and, um, all over the U.S., Mexico, South America. We had folks tuning in from Brazil, from France. And it was really cool to know that people wanted to see what we were doing um, and that they were able to. And part of that experience mm -hmm. also led to us doing our, our first international gig. And uh, it was online and it was for, we were invited to perform for as the featured finale event for a week long uh, contemporary theater residency that was being produced in Mexico. 
So uh, as they graduated, they had a little event and a little little graduation party and event, and then they were treated to uh, a live stream performance of my work pods. How cool is that? I never would have been able to do that prior to the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. I think there's there's something about that that idea of expanding the audience is is something that I think uh, is is worth pursuing some form of digital connection or digital performance in the post pandemic times once we're out of this thing oh, because yeah. there's so many times when there are things that happen in other parts of even just Canada that we can't see. But if there was a digital ticket and a live stream performance, we there are shows that I would have loved to see that are happening in different places around Canada. And imagine being able to open up our, our performances to other places in the world and share that and see what they're doing. I think that is is something that in our rush to get back into physical spaces, we shouldn't forget about the benefits of the live stream. Oh, yes. And the live stream also, it it is amazing for accessibility. So it, the barriers for, for attendance and participation drop immediately when you have uh, digital content. So folks who can't perhaps make uh, have physical disability and, and the theater is not accessible. They can attend the performance. Uh, you can in, integrate um, uh, ASL. You can integrate uh, written and visual interpretation. Um, of the work. There's so many different ways to make work inclusive using digital formats and online. And of course, there's always that sort of geography barrier, you know, bringing art to people who are in rural areas who don't necessarily um, have time to go to an urban area or the means or they don't um, know and they're able to uh, participate. They could take a workshop. They could take a class. They could view a performance. Um, they could be part of a creative process or a talking circle. Uh, that they, this just wasn't happening before. So I, I really feel super strongly about continuing myself, continuing to offer online options, especially for our professional development programs like the Brain Body Connection and our community workshop programs, because it does open it just opens the door to many more people being able to come into the room absolutely and in a world where sometimes in the arts we we have that that hand-wringing discussion about where the audience is um anything we can do to make the make it easier for the audience to find us is 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 something that will pay off later right you know, another accessibility option is the fact that in some cases, you know, there's there's uh, financial accessibility as well. Like maybe people sometimes tickets are out, are over are outpriced, or or even if if somebody is working and then now they have to figure out how are they going to get downtown to see the show and afford dinner and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Watch it on your computer, and now mm-hmm. you're still able to participate. It opens up so many things, and I think mm-hmm. that um, again. Uh, rushing to get back to in person is great, but we do have to keep in mind that that there is something to be gained from sharing online. For sure. And because of our online experiences, we actually implemented a brand new um, method of, of, of ticketing into all of our shows, including our 
including our in-person live shows, we offer, we have a program that is the free low income ticket program. And we have a corporate sponsor that picked that up. Uh, they loved one of the shows that we were doing so much, our enchanted night forest glow in the dark show that they've come on board and purchased a hundred tickets for next year's season for, for, for low income applicants. And we've also added a, a, a tiered ticketing system that's on the honor system. It's self-identifying. And we explain that the higher priced tickets um, are tiered so that they will supplement the cost of lower priced tickets. And we talk about um, community, uh, supporting each other through community. And we allow people to select the ticket price that most is most suitable to their um, current uh, income. And uh, it's been great during the pandemic. We've, we haven't had um, uh, any trouble um, generating the, the ticket sales numbers that we need in order to keep the company going. And we've uh, actually um, been able to discover a few potential, you know, regular patrons and things like that, because folks are really happy to know uh, that their ticket price is actually helping to support someone else to come see this show who wouldn't necessarily be able to attend. Yeah. You know, I, I think about, I have a coworker who lives in Berlin and when they talk about theater, because they say they go to the theater quite a, quite a bit and in Germany and in much of the EU, uh, the theater and live, the performing arts, the arts in general are highly subsidized. The government sees it as a necessity and gives money. And so there are plenty of affordable tickets to shows because the companies, the, the ticket prices are subsidized by government uh, funding and, and other, other aspects. And so it is, it is very uncommon for people to think of theater as something they can't afford because everybody can afford it because there's so many of these affordable tickets. And I think the idea of, of having somebody uh, like a corporation step up to, to help do that. If, if, if we're not, you know, cause we have a different funding model here, that's an amazing thing. And to have somebody step up to do that is, 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 is amazing. And I wish there was more of that in our, in our Canadian performing arts scene. Oh, it's such a beautiful thing. It diversifies your audience immediately when you implement this type of ticketing, uh, ranging from free free tickets to um, subsidized tickets to higher higher tiered tickets. I can't say enough that um, you know there will be some people who will abuse the system. There's that always happens, but I think the majority of people, if you are very transparent about what the costs of your uh, tickets are and why they are, um, you know, the, these prices and what that means to the organization and to the other people who are attending, uh, that people really appreciate hearing that and they stand behind it and they support it. So having this, um, having corporate sponsorship is wonderful. And also just having the support of your community. We don't live in a society where everywhere, you know, it, there's equitable pay for everyone and people who are uh, in the situation where financially they can afford a higher price ticket, being able to see that that ticket provides 
someone else who may not be able to attend uh, the ability to come is quite satisfying, I think. And it's a great model. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful new addition to our ticketing platform. Absolutely. Absolutely. It sounds amazing. Jackie, thank you so much for, for talking with me today. It's always such a joy to connect with you again. And uh, I hope to, to, to see you guys performing uh, out of the church as soon as possible. Thank you. It's great to connect with you again. Let's make sure it doesn't take quite so long next time. <laughs>